Hello everybody, um, how are you? Hope this finds you well. Edith here. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to another episode of my podcast celebrating the relationship between music and film. Um, we're on episode 229. How did that happen? Um, it happened because you guys keep listening and our guests keep coming, which we are eternally grateful and thankful for. Um, and our latest guest on Soundtracking is a composer who's been nominated for a BAFTA on no fewer than five occasions for his sterling output for television. Murray Gold is perhaps best known for his work on Doctor Who, which saw him continue a long-time partnership with legendary screenwriter Russell T. Davies. The pair first joined forces on Queer as Folk. Remember that show? So great. And have since collaborated on numerous critically celebrated shows such as Years and Years and A Very English Scandal, of which Hugh Grant talked about in great detail quite a few episodes ago. Their latest project is It's a Sin, which premieres on Channel 4 on January the 22nd. A tale of extreme highs and ghastly lows, it recounts the story of five 18-year-olds who moved to London in the early 80s and have their lives turned upside down by the AIDS crisis. More on that shortly, but we'll begin where Murray and Russell did with Queer as Folk. chasing after some bloke who turns out to be mad. Like, really mad. Really mad. Really mad. Hi, Molly. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Oh, that's a good-looking audio suite. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, um, our builders did it this this year when we kind of came into the house, and it, I was looking for a studio specialist, and he said, "Oh, don't worry, I've done loads of them in the '70s, and that you can actually see that he's done loads of them in the '70s." <laughs> I don't think they really actually do do it like that anymore, but I'll, I'll take it. I love it. <laughs> It's quite Blake Seven. It's awesome. Yeah, it's like it looks like yeah, it looks, it looks brilliant. I love it. It's, it's every, I mean, like literally every square inch of <laughs> apart from the windows, including the door to the bathroom, <laughs> has got these pads on it. Literally bouncing off the walls, basically. I could actually. You're, you're right. It is one of those places where you could just express all of your feelings. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. You know what? I waited. I was going to like, um, next time I'm in, I'm going to wait. Edith wants to do it in person. I'm in America. I'm going to come to England. And when I'm next in England, I'm going to make sure I do it. Oh, so, so that we can get together in person. Well, we could do another one when we can actually physically, <laughs> you know, like be in the same room as each other. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how we're going to like 
unlock the you know the instinct to keep apart I keep on thinking about that like I said to Gemma my wife like I just said I don't know if I'll ever be able to stand at a bar and drink again and she said don't worry you will <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really tactile I'm a hugger and it's just the I mean you know my my, my family are well you know my husband and my kids are they're, they're over the hugs for me to be honest it's just I just got the the need to just hug <laughs> non-family members <laughs> yeah they are your hug toys <laughs> basically it's like I am not Tigger I am not a cuddly toy put me down it's so lovely because we've talked about you on the show loads, actually, and I've had the opportunity to speak to you, speak speak about you in a very positive light uh, with Russell. Actually, when I did a panel with him and and Hugh Grant, and uh, which was which was so fascinating and so brilliant. But it was really great hearing Russell talk about how important your music is to right. to his to his creative process, really. You've worked together for, for quite a number of years now, haven't you? That's like a kind of really fruitful... years. Wow! Because Queer as Folk was 22, 20 years old, isn't it? That's how I know that. Is that the first thing you did together then? Yeah. Yeah, he <sighs> called me up. I was like, I was living in a hotel because something... Had, I, I think, no, so I once, I burnt my flat down while we were doing cues on, on Queer as Folk. But um, prior to that, we... Me and I was living with my brother. We got moved out of this flat because of subsidence. And we were living in this hotel. And we were in this really miserable hotel over Christmas. And Russell just rung me up and said, because Vanity Fair had just gone out. And, yeah. you know, they'd actually just fired their composer off of Queer as Folk and they needed a replacement. So they had a meeting of the Maggie. You know, <laughs> there was Paul Abbott and Nicola Schindler. And like people were like, whose music, what do you like that's on right now? And someone said, that Vanity Fair, that was, that was off the charts. What was that all about? I, that was good. And, and so the Russell called me up on, off the back of that. Like, you know. That's amazing. Is it, lo- it, was, it was Christmas time, which was the perfect time to meet Russell. <laughs> 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 it just all worked, you know. And he said, he just on the phone, I'm not going to impersonate him because I do it so often and I realise it can sound really <laughs> rude to everyone, to Russell personally and to Welsh people and to everything. But he just said, Murray, I've done this thing and it's the, I think it's the best thing I've ever done and I just want you to look at it. Can you just look at it? You know, I was like, okay, of course. You know. It was such an important piece of TV, I think, on, on so many levels. I think that, you know, there are, I think there are benchmarks in TV where things have really broken through and really sort of changed uh changed culture really i think it's weird i was talking to um alan bell last week the writer who wrote six feet under yeah yeah yeah. i was saying to him that for me that was a really uh brave piece of tv you know in terms of what it was talking about and so many things it was talking about within the show and just the aesthetic of it and all that kind of thing as well but i think that queerest folk was 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 a similar thing in terms of it was such a an important and brave and much needed piece of, of drama. Yeah, I think it's, it's weird that Russell's important because he doesn't dwell and important writers usually dwell and they meander and they, you know, it's, um, Russell has a good time and all of his characters have a good time whilst they're finding out about things. Yeah. And that's what I think really broke the mould. So people probably didn't recognise it at the time that it was an important, it's like retrospectively, I'm sure it just bulldozed through so many preconceptions about what a gay drama should be. Mm -hmm. I think most of all, 
you know, Russell refuses to be gloomy, pretty much. I mean, it, lately he's started killing off people we all love, but um, he didn't <laughs> used to do that. <laughs> he's changed. Um, but, you know, the world does get to you after a while, I suppose. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I just remember that, I just remember showing it to the press. And actually, Russell said that it was the, the journalist from Heat who said, my readers are going to love this and stood by it. But it was actually the TV critic from Jackie magazine. According to my memory of that day, uh, one critic stood up and said, I'm gay and this is terrible. This is exactly the kind of material that pigeonholes gay people and makes everybody think that all we're interested in is hedonism. Yeah. And then this guy from Jackie magazine stood up and said well I think my readers are going to love it (laughs) yeah just you know later on I I I mean I didn't realize for a long time after I met and my wife that she watched you know she and her mum loved watching Queer as Folk in the 90s when they were much too young for it really but it had audiences in all these pockets of all these areas and the famous thing like the you know the becks cancelling the the ads when they saw it and withdrawing their support for channel four and it caused big business problems and all that just added to it, i think but um yeah it was i mean i just remember the party afterwards they had to have the party in the daytime so as not to look like they were encouraging more hedonism yeah. which just meant like it just we, went on longer we partied the whole it was a yeah it's really fun oh it sounded great as well you know and i i, I do you have a starting point with a project in terms of i i don't know how does it work with you when you when you're sent a script or you're you talk to a director or producers about a project that you're going to work on. Do you, do you have a, where do you start? Oh God, I don't know. I don't do very much. Um, I've done lots of things. I've done lots of things and most of the things I've done have been quite prominent, you know, so they've all been a certain type of thing, like a kind of working class poetry, even Doctor Who in a funny way, you know, when it started off, it's like a, I mean, and I would say a particularly national brand of television, which I'm really concerned about, you know, because as much as everybody says now is the golden age, you know, like the Netflix delivers a multi-region product. Yeah. Um, I love I love the national product. I love Shameless. I love Sally Wainwright. I love Russell. Paul Abbott is, you know, these are writers who embody the spirit of the British Isles in one way or another. And... Um, where do I start? It's often, is it that kind of script? Is it something I can do? Is it going to be fun? Is it going to suit my music? Because I like to, you know, I like to sing out. And the first thing you notice about Russell's writing is the stage directions a lot of the time. I mean, it just, you know, he's singing along in the notes, in the margins. And a lot of the time, it literally feels like at any moment, any of these characters might just break into song um, which makes it very fertile ground for a composer to work on and there's a lot of other things which you know they may as well not be in my realm of work you know like nominally it's the same job you're writing music for a thing yeah but it always gets sticky and tricky and hard and you're trying to imitate someone else and I think every musician ultimately wants to just sound like themselves and if you can marry the sound of your own voice to the material that fits with it, 
then you know you're going to have a nice marriage there. I've de- I've definitely done some things that were shit and that I was shit on, <laughs> and you know we all have. <laughs> yeah, well, oh my god, uh, that's the only way you learn, though. Learn not to try not to do them again if you, if you can help <laughs> it. Or, you know, it's a care, like it does start with the the reading of the script, like. Can you genuinely, I mean, yeah, you might need the money, you might need the acclaim, you might need the start, but can you genuinely say this job is going to be something you're good at doing? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I guess that's where it starts. I've got so much I want to ask you about. Um, So I'm I'm sorry if I just throw sort of things at you. Oh, God, no. At you. But one of the films that you uh, composed the music for that I... I still to this day, even just thinking about it makes me chuckle. Um, and I really enjoyed was Death at Funeral. Oh right, yeah. I don't know what it was. I rewatched it recently. I think because I went down a bit of a Matthew McFadden rabbit hole after just the succession. Oh my god, it's yeah. so good. And kind of going, what can I watch? And I was like, oh my god, yes, I've got to watch Death at Funeral again. And I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting that film, and it just really stands the test of time. Um, and I think because you know we've all had some kind of experience a funeral and and being Scottish the kind of wakes that I've been to of of kind of you know they're they're kind of you talk about hedonism they're so debauched it's unbelievable sometimes but there's just something brilliant about that film that I thought was so great and so funny and so timeless I think as well in terms of it's got elements of kind of kind of really old school comedy but then it kind of just feels sort of really present and relevant as well even watching it now. And so yeah. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, about that and kind of navigating the scores. You've for totally that. thrown me there because nobody has ever asked me about that film. Yes, that's what I aim <laughs> for, Murray. To go to but the places that no one dare go. I tell you so many things about that film. Sitting with, oh my God, sitting in the Tribeca Grill with Frank Oz whilst he was talking about Marlon Brando. And because um, he just, he didn't Brando's last film, I think. Wow. Um, he, he made that film with, what's his face, the, the Ed, Ed Norton and Marlon Brando. Yeah. And he was just talking, oh, I can't, I shouldn't repeat because it's showbiz tittle-tattle. <laughs> but it was just so, I mean, it was Matthew McFadden. I, I just remember, I went to see a lot of um, Declan Donnellan's plays, Cheek by Jowl, and he was a big performer with them. So I, I kind of, I'd, I'd sort of known him because a mate of mine was at RADA in his year and I'd gone to see all the RADA productions that he was in. And I really, I thought he was a brilliant actor. He just had this lovely, or still does, just has this lovely way about him. And for a while, I think there was, I did a bunch of things that he, he was in. And he was just in Quiz as well, which, which I wish I yeah. did with Stephen Frears. And uh, yeah, Frank Oz went and, <laughs> I mean, I... Like Frank Oz is a real legend for me. I mean, he was in all those John Landis movies, and he was like his his special, like Lucky Charm. He had to be in John Landis's movies, otherwise John Landis wasn't happy. So he's in Blues Brothers and everything, you know. And and he's one of my favorite films of, ever. And he's the voice of Yoda. It's he's like... the voice of every all the missing. At the end, when we finished the rap, we went for a, we all went for a meal in. Um, that pizza place in Soho where people go, you know, that one. I don't even know if it's there anymore. I've lived in America for 15 years, but I just came back to England. It's the one where the jazz goes on. Yeah, not not Pizza Express, not that one. <laughs> the, the one in the middle next to where Les Mis was on, um, upstairs. Oh, do I have a bar? No, you have. 
<laughs> I mean, you may not, but I, I bet you have. But anyway, in, anyway, we just went, went there for pizza and he hadn't done he hadn't done any voices the whole time we'd been working on the show. Yeah. And everybody like, you know, everybody wants it. And then he just he stood up at the end and he said, OK, you guys, I'm just going to get this out of the way. And he did every voice he's ever done. And it was just I was so beautiful. I was so happy that I was there because. I absolutely loved the Muppets yeah. more than you know, more than Star Wars, you know, just hearing. And he couldn't quite do Miss Piggy anymore because his voice wasn't oh. quite, couldn't go high enough. Yeah. The fuzzy bear and, you oh. know, oh, he was absolutely meticulous on that movie. He He's he's a real, he's, he almost does the science of comedy. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, he would measure the audience laughter every time he screened it. And he would come back to the edit suite and he would have this track of the laughter so he could measure it up against whether the edit was working or not. And I'd say, Frank, a lot of these laughs are, you know, not scream out loud funny. A lot of it's silent chuckling. And he'd be like, that isn't laughter. I don't want, I don't want silent chuckling. I don't want people inwardly <laughs> enjoying this movie I want them to be deafening the people next to them <laughs> and weirdly it, you know I, I don't think it did that well it did really well in Australia and then the production company that made it decided to have another go at it two years later you know they remade it mm-hmm. with Chris Rock I think or yeah. someone like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, good. This is my break. This is my movie break. I'm doing a movie with Frank Oz and he's just done. And wouldn't I own, wouldn't I just pick the only movie that's ever been made, remade within two years of coming out? So, uh, well, um, I encourage people to go and watch that. And I think, you know, we, as you kind of, you know, weirdly <laughs> talking about relating back to what Frank was saying, we could all do with a good laugh right now. And believe me, this film really gives you it. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, it does. It's really expulsive. Yeah. With those yeah. conversations, though, with someone like him about music, what are the conversations that you had about that then in terms of... It was, it began, it began terribly. I was staying in my brother's flat in Brooklyn because he was living there at the time. I just went over there. He said, he just said, we're all, we're going to America. Can you come to America and work with us? And I, and I, I think I actually had an American girlfriend at the time. And so that was okay. But I didn't have any digs, so I had like a computer and he's a, like a Hollywood director and I just didn't have anywhere to work. And he, he decided that he'd, he'd already done a screening at, at the, one of the cinemas in Tribeca. And he said, I hadn't even seen the film, you know, and he just it was 2006, I think. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen the film. And he just rung me up. He said, we need something. We need something happy for the end. It's just got to be happy. And I, I said, well, would it, you know, I, normally I lead up to the end. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> normally this comes about because of a long process of throwing out some music and finding something that works. But you just want me to score the last scene and make it really happy. He said, yes, because he just didn't have time for any shit from his composer yeah. and you know never mind method or anything like that so I just wrote some really bland anodyne thing and then he called me back the next uh, next week and just said well it didn't work it's still not happy <laughs> and I, I just said well you know I'm not happy and who no one I can't do that so eventually he just let me go off and you know do have some a- music and you know have a go at it yeah 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 
there's a lot of foolishness in this business, as you no doubt realise. I suppose as as I I started in it really young, when I would do anything pretty much, and then fairly quickly sort of started blocking off avenues for everyone and myself, and just saying I'm you know there's there's quite a few things I won't do, and like. There's, there's a lot that happens in America. I had two experiences with NBC, both, both times I walked off the project. And the second, you know, it was a surprise I got invited back the second time where it was pure, you know, you know, the Martin Amis book, Money, yeah. where they, there's this big project that everyone's working on that never actually happens in the end. But it's a, a vehicle for all of these relationships to combust. It was just an exercise in just, blanket middle management terror at the kind of imperial leaders of the broadcasting industry they they couldn't tell you anything about anything they couldn't tell you what that they wanted they mm. couldn't tell you when anything would be finished they couldn't tell you um it was you know it was really it was a fascinating experiment for me but yeah i mean that that sort of working backwards thing has never happened since you know like been there done that never want to do it again yeah 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 no, no but you know I just, I just don't know anyone who would really do that say okay let's get some really happy music for the last scene and start from there <laughs> um you mentioned doctor who and i mean in terms of working across something like that for as long as you did you're creating the 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 sonic kind of backdrop for so many different doctor who characters you know you've got a number of different doctors coming in over the time that you worked yeah. in it but also when you start on something like that when there is like an an existing presence you know there's that there's that old theme you know because yeah. it's not like i mean i don't know if it, i can't imagine there was a conversation going let's have a new doctor who theme tune because yeah, it's no, it's it you can't change you can manipulate it and update it and change it and mix it and and make it different and make it more relevant and you know re-record it and stuff but you can't lose the essence of that really because it's got such a it's such an iconic thing isn't it absolutely more than almost anything else i mean maybe you know the tardis and and maybe the you know the eccentric yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean there was never any consideration about it being a different theme there was only consideration about how to do the theme that's there and initially russell wanted it to be the delia derbyshire theme then I think it just, when it rolled, especially at the end, after all that drama, you know, and all that melodrama, because, mm -hmm. you know, had love and, mm -hmm. you know, friendship. In, it was, you know, it was clearly a different show from the one that had been before. Yeah. When Rose had, was cut and finished, it, it was just a different thing. So they realised then that they, wa they wanted something a bit more, you know, a bit more muscular, really, mm -hmm. a bit more just that made you give you a feeling of resolution rather than a feeling of pure eeriness.
yeah, Dodd to Who. It's funny to refer to things in the past. I used to keep everything in my life open. I mean, just everything. I mean, all the, all the same friends. And, you know, and, you know, when I went to America, I never got rid of my London flat and, you know, never closed that door. And mm-hmm. now I think it's something to do with having kids. I've started just cutting everything off and closing chapters. It's funny to think of Doctor Who as being something I did once, you know, not something I'm doing. Yeah? Do you miss you, you know? it? Uh, well, oh, God, do I miss it? I mean, it, it gave me such a, a, a reason to, to be around for such a long time that I didn't have to look for other reasons. You know, it, it, it felt so important and um, it was so all-consuming. Yeah. Um, I had to really live according to what was happening in that world. I had to get up you know, and exercise early in the morning so that I could get the, the, the enough work done. You know, it suited me, though, because unlike film, you know, television is a very fast turnaround. Um, in film, the whole system is there for people to philosophize about and talk about and for everyone to pitch in according to how much money they've given to the film with their opinion. <laughs> yeah. And... Television's really different, you know, it's a broadcast day and you it's snap, snap, do it, you know, and I love that way of working. I think you just got to do it. So I've tried to carry that it on in, you know, in my life. I, I've, I've tried to carry on working fast on things that don't need to be done fast just because I like working fast. <laughs> uh, yeah. so I like snatching the idea when it comes. I just think too much you know people give too much emphasis to I haven't got enough time you know yeah. or I can't I you know how long does it take to write a song how long did Lennon and McCartney take to write songs I don't I don't know but probably 10 minutes some of them <laughs> you know at least the flesh out the outline you know yeah and a lot of the time you're just trying to catch the energy of the moment you thought of something yeah you know and that that was always the way on Doctor Who and I, I loved that it was like, oh, people always used to say, well, what happens if you get writer's block? What happens if one day you wake up and you just, you don't want to write any music? And I just, I just said that never happened. I just, it just never happened. There was always something feeding it. Yeah. Well, that was so, something, something I wanted to ask because how many doctors did you score for? <laughs> oh God. I should know that, shouldn't I? Right off the top, Chris, David, David. Matt and um, Peter. Peter, four. Four. They were all so different, you know, in terms of what they brought to that role. And so, you know, it's not like the sets change or the aesthetic changes, but, you know, you have directors coming in like Ben Wheatley directing an episode and things like that. And so, but the music, I guess, has to complement the performance, doesn't it? It has to complement or it has to, it has to work alongside that in a way. Because I feel like that you're someone who really reacts to performance because you think of Shameless and the score that, I mean, that was a character within that. Um, and I feel that you kind of really connect with performance and the, the essence of characters in, in, in when you write music. Yeah, I mean, I prefer the, the characters to have a, a punkish kind of swagger to them. And um, th- they all do. Russell's 
characters and Paul Abbott's characters and Sally's characters, you know, even right up to date with Gentleman Jack, they do have this punk swagger. Yeah. And I, I like that because they are doing it for themselves. And that's, you know, it's that kind of music where it's very, I'm just about the spirit of the show. So Doctor Who was a little bit of a Trojan horse in a way because it was a, a pre-existing title but which Russell very much got inside and took himself into enemy encampments and then let everything explode. He, he, he used Doctor Who as just a perfect fit with him, his style of writing um, and this mad, eccentric, peace-loving, human-loving person. I mean, it just pretty much <laughs> describes Russell. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine you know, there is so much of him in these characters. Even a small, you know, it's totally, and the same with Stephen when he took over. You, you know, you know, it, it just a, a little, little bit more of Stephen came in, and these are just subtle shifts in the recipe. But as a, as the composer, you have to really be, you have to detect that. It's the stuff that goes on in inside you. It's your, your, you know, your, your empathy measuring tools it's yeah. your feelings of of what are you seeing is this does this music fit with it does this you know you don't really consciously ask yourself if that will to, you know you, you just respond directly and again it goes back to the speed thing you know just try and keep everything as as instantaneous as possible the first time I saw Shameless on this terrible shitty video um, <laughs> format that they were using it, it was basically looked like a hand just a VHS camera from about 1986 or something and they graded it afterwards so it looked a bit more like film but it didn't matter what it was all these technical things I can't stand it I don't care about visual effects I don't care about but I really don't care how anything looks. I care about its spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, does it sound like music? Does it feel like the writer's been waiting all their lives to tell you this? And can they keep that up through middle episodes? Because nearly every TV series has a great first episode and a great last episode. It's all, where is the spirit of the show? What's it all about, this thing? What can you tell us about um, It's a Sin? Because there's been a, a lot of brilliant press around It's a Sin and it's kind of necessity to be being on TV and kind of almost, you know, why is it taking so long for a conversation like this to be on telly, basically? And I've got to say the music in the series, from what I've heard, is phenomenal. An amazing mixture of brilliant tunes that you all know i mean i had to stop myself singing along to everything <laughs> from like kelly marie feels like i'm in love and all that kind of stuff it's so great Before, but I know I'm to 
approach the the music for it and and where did you start with it because i love how it feels like there's almost kind of musical bubbles for each character in a way it yeah it's, I, I loved it i thought it was absolutely brilliant where did you start with it well, I started the same way I start anything, you know, I just uh, read the script and I know that feeling of that greyness of that time where they started. And when you've, when you've got a, a record player or a boombox or whatever you could get and you played music in your room, everything came to life and colour came into your world, you know, and just... I felt very strongly that it needed to have an 80s sound. Mm. And initially, everybody disagreed with that. And they wanted it to sound really contemporary. And, and then we went all around. I mean, I, I did a full score with a very 80s sound with those big kind of piano-y, sort of glistening kind of, you know, you know yeah, those sounds. Totally. You know, anyway, people, people don't think they know those sounds, but they do know those <laughs> All the synthesizers of the time. And when I grew up, I used to take, at break time, I used to go to Future Music and just go into the shop in my school uniform and play all the keyboards mm. all afternoon, all, all lunch break. The irony is that I didn't love 80s music at the time. Yeah. yeah. I loved David Bowie. and I was listening to all of David Bowie's 70s albums in the early 80s and catching up with that. And so I was really resistant to Duran Duran and Depeche Mode. I thought they were just... I was one of those people who thought, oh, my God, it's all about the video and nothing about the music. Aha, take on me. <laughs> oh, that was, a, that, was, that was revolutionary, though. <laughs> But, you know, it is, it's a character piece. And eventually Russell said, you know what? I think I do love that 80s thing that you're doing because it just actually fits in with everything else. And now we can't, where, where does it begin and where does that music end? And so, it, you know, I don't know what the end looks like because I haven't seen it and you have. So I have no idea, um, but, <laughs> you know, they all had their own little pieces. Yeah. They all had their own music. And then there was a little bit of stuff for, you know, the plague, which, you know, sounds evil. How do you treat the virus in, yeah. in this piece, you know, musically? I mean, again, I went very, very dark with it. And Russell asked me to pull back. Uh, and then I pulled back and people thought maybe it wasn't dark enough. This is what happens, you know, when you, yeah. when you score something. You have all these conversations about tone. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a really difficult piece to do in some ways. And yet, most of what I wrote in the first chunk of what I submitted is what we ended up with. So it is a bit of a cheat. I mean, a, a lot of it is surrounded by 80s um, sounds with some very modern plugins mm -hmm. um, around it and things that would be more difficult to do at the time. It's so funny, though, because it's... It's such a nostalgia trip as well through those tunes that, that Russell's picked to play. Even things like the This Is Your Life theme tune that kind of pops up in the middle of an episode, just in the background, you know, it's even, I think it's like sort of 10 seconds of it and it's kind of like, ah, oh, I was straight back to sitting like on my mum's couch watching every episode of I love This Is Your Life. It was such a great show. Um, but that theme tune was like, down, 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 down. It was such a big like... Boom. 
separate the theme tune from This Is Your Life from the theme tune to The Six Million Dollar Man? I don't know the theme tune. Think about it. It will haunt you once you realize. Okay. Is that... Wait, which one is that? Brilliant. I love I love when there's um, I love a bit of trivia, and I yeah. love that there's um, so it's Ollie Alexander obviously stars in It's a Sin, yeah. who is the lead singer for years and years. <laughs> yeah. So complicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Every time I used to look up years and years music when I was self googling to see how it had gone down, all I would get was Ollie Alexander. Oh, and that, and so <laughs> I am the king. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. he's brilliant. Ollie's amazing. Well, he's great in the show. It turns out he's, an, he's a great actor as mm. well. He's really so good. It's suddenly become incredibly topical because, you know, just because the virus theme of this show, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, this show was, um, Russell wrote it a while ago uh, and the script existed and people didn't go for it in the same way that they, they embrace some of his other shows. They just were squeamish about putting it out for whatever reason, they didn't feel that the world wanted a show about AIDS. Never mind that it's Russell and, yeah. you know, give the man some respect. He wants to write a show about this. This is a very important part Absolutely. of his life. We, we need to hear about it. Um, but, you know, finally, it was greenlit. And then I, I think almost that they finished filming it in at the end of February, I think, or maybe even the beginning of March. And suddenly what they have in the bag is this, sh- it just, it's, it just chimes. I mean, the, the fear, you've got a group of friends who, you know, nobody does a group of friends like Russell hmm. does. He, you know, they just, uh, <laughs> are just running around with full of life and vitality and, trying to you know ignoring everything all they want to do is discover who they are and enjoy it after being hemmed in uh, at home actually it was started on the Isle of Wight the show and I'm from Portsmouth so I knew that ferry ride really well I knew that cloying sense of non-metropolitan hopelessness like every day is like Sunday yeah. I mean it just really is so grey and then you're going into Technicolor that's what the show is so it's it's about these kids lives going into technicolor i i i think it's also incredibly i mean i'm you know i'm probably the pr people 
don't want me to say this or don't want this to be the message, but it's very sad. I mean, it's tragic. I mean, yeah. it just is operatically tragic. It hurts. Yeah. It's really painful and it's really cruel. And this is drama. Yeah, so, uh, that's good drama. Yeah, I mean, I prefer, I don't like it anymore. I don't, I mean, I'm not, I work on this, these things, but right now, because I've got, I mean, I think something happens because I've got, you know, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah. And I can't watch thing, bad things happen to people. Yeah, totally. At the moment. I mean, even, yeah, the news and things like that, I would be like, a, almost like a sick feeling in my stomach that is, it's a physical reaction to, yeah, I absolutely understand what you're saying with that. Totally. Yeah. There was a great film a couple of years ago, French film called 120 BPM which um, was about this kind of brilliant group of kids around, it was set in the kind of 90s. And again, it was absolutely tragic, but it had this, but weirdly the music in that, and it had, um, it used Bronski Beats, Small Town Boy was a big yeah. kind of anthem within the show. And it was just, it had that, and the music was the thing that gave the, the euphoria and the kind of, it, the comfort almost in a way, you know, through all this this kind of truth that was going on for these young people. It is that. And you, I just, no, it's always going to be that. In Portsmouth, people really liked the jam, you know, when I was growing up. And it's fast music, it's direct. When, you know, even now, when I see the jam on stage, you know, in, in, in foot, old footage, and I see Paul Weller just standing there staring down the camera... <laughs> with that challenging, just, it just, it's so exciting. That's what everybody really wants. I, I know it's all in disguise when you write with big orchestras on Doctor Who, you don't hear the jam. You're not hearing that anymore, but you still want it to be that direct. Yeah. You know, you still want it to leap down the camera and grab people by the throat and say, you know, you know who does this at the moment is Anna Meredith, who's yeah. a Scottish composer. And mm -hmm. she's really, she's really brilliant. I, I just started listening to her music. And then in the way that you can do now, I managed to find a way of just, contacting her and telling her how much her music sounded to me like the scintillating experience of being alive and um, she was really pleased <laughs> that's so nice that's a lovely thing to do most you know so many people wouldn't bother with that but to reach out to someone and go thanks it's really yeah. important to me because it's really lonely trying you know walking from one person to the another trying to find somebody who is as as much turned on about things as you are it's kind of like um like the same things you know yeah um and some sometimes you can just you, you can just hear that somebody totally understands something whoever it, it was about 
you know, no one can, no one can show how much they love being alive through music more than Stevie Wonder, for example. And it's just, it's just out there. But where do you go to fight? Where are all these people now? <laughs> <You know. laughs> show yourself immediately. Um, listen, before we run out of time, I've got to say huge congratulations as well on a very English scandal, um, because I thought that show was absolutely fantastic. And that was the the panel actually that I was uh, chatting with um, with Russell and um, Hugh and Stephen Frears, who scared the bejesus out of me. Um, <laughs> I love him. He's um, I, yeah, I love him, but I'm absolutely intimidated <laughs> by him. He sat there on stage with these kind of glass of neat whiskey with the the ice cubes rattling around in it as he kind of just lounged back there kind of going give me your best question and <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. but the show was brilliant and i just wanted to ask about whether because it's it's period you know in terms of it's yeah. set in a specific time how you because this the score doesn't feel not dated is not the right word but it, it doesn't feel like it's in a box so to speak of that you know, that it would only work within that sort of time frame. What was the kind of request of what the score, the importance of the score for that that series? And because, you know, it's over a, a number of episodes as well. I think I just, I'd, I'd read the book and then I read the script and um, it was such a great story and the script is so funny. I just wrote, went home and on the, before I'd seen any of, the, any of the film or any of the footage, I just wrote, a theme you know and it's and so good <laughs> i just sent it to stephen and he completely ignored it for a while and <laughs> i mean I, I actually wrote an email to stephen about how important my beautiful laundrette was in portsmouth oh, um, wow. and how at the abc cinema in commercial road um we'd gone down a bunch of mates had gone down to see it and it was like that real and you know it was my Dear Stephen letter, and he never, ever acknowledged having received it. And then I reminded him about it a year later. He said, oh, I just uh, couldn't have read it. So that was a waste of my time. But <laughs> when I just wrote some tunes to it, I think he said something like, isn't it customary to look at some of the film first? <laughs> <laughs> and I yes, said, well, yes, Stephen, whatever you say, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, well, I said, if you don't like it, you can just chuck it out. I said, well, it's rather good. <laughs> oh, I love hearing I love Hugh talking about him as well. We had Hugh was the other one that was talking about you as well, um, on, on the show and um oh, wow. Yeah, he was. He's so funny when he talks about Stephen Frears. It's brilliant. It's great. Yeah. It's really, really, really funny. Listen, Murray, thank you so much for your time. I could chat to you for ages. Please, can we do this again in person? Yeah, I promise. Of course. If you're thank happy you. for a hug, I'll hug you. But you know, you can tell me on the day. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, that, you know, bring it all back. Oh, it'd be so lovely to to do this in person and really, you know, dig deeper because we haven't. You know, we've 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 kind of. I feel like we sort of flitted across so many things and not really gone to. into. Yeah to any depth but it's lovely almost in a way for to remind people of all the, the the some of the brilliant work that you've worked on and then we can we can take a deep dive in the next episode hopefully oh, in person thank you so much for having me oh absolutely my pleasure and um yeah you take care and stay safe as well the family you too 
Thanks, Thanks a lot, lot Marty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. As written by Murray Gold, that's the theme tune to Shameless, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with a hugely entertaining composer. My huge thanks to Murray for taking the time to talk to us. As I mentioned, it's a Sin premieres on Channel 4 on the 22nd of January and is dynamite television. If you do want to hear my conversation with Hugh Grant about a very English scandal, head to edithbowman.com. It was episode 91 where you'll also be able to find every other single episode of the podcast to date. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do check out our YouTube channel for a regular show I put together with a whole range of guests from the realms of film, music and television. Next up on the podcast, well, over the next couple of weeks, we are welcoming some extraordinary guests to the podcast. Katie Mulligan and Emerald Fennell talking about their film Promising Young Women. We have fantastic female director, British female director called Zaina Dura, who is joined by her composer, Nasca Linares, to talk about a beautiful film that stars Andrea Riseborough called Luxor. We are also going to welcome onto soundtracking Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Somebody pinch me! Oh my goodness, can't wait for that one. I'm also really excited to welcome back Amelia Warner, who joined us way back when we did uh, Soundtracking Live at the BFI with Amelia, Carly Paradis and Emily Levenes farouche Very much looking forward to welcoming Amelia back to talk about a brand new film that she's composed, Wild Mountain Time. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.